instead of going home and having your alcohol to calm down, finalize your day by reviewing your day and tomorrow so that you can contract with yourself. I've dealt with all of that. I've written down everything I need to do tomorrow. I don't need to think about it, number one. Number two, you have to put yourself into a much more optimistic mood. Be not so pessimistic about your day. Things going wrong. Oh, I didn't get that done. You have to see the other side, the perspective. In other words, you do a gratitude list. That got done and that got done. Wow, that's not bad. And the third thing is to reconnect with who you really are. You are not the, whatever, lawyer, accountant, doctor. You are this person that has this loving family there. Oh, and what were they doing? Oh, so-and-so handed in their, their assignment. I wonder how that went. Start to connect with that. That is Dr. Ian Chung. And this is episode 275 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello, I'm Osher Ginsberg, and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Thank you so much for being here on the show. This is episode 275 of the show with Dr. Ian Chung, uh, a man that if you've read my book, you'll know is a person who's very significant in my life. I cannot wait for you to hear this one. It is packed with some really incredible uh, chat about um, performance and addiction and just trying to get through life. He's an extraordinary man, and I'm just so grateful that he came on the show. If you're new, uh, let me t- take you through what this podcast is all about. Um, this podcast is a weekly conversation that's been going on for the last 274 weeks. Well, 75 if you count this one. Um, and this conversation is with someone that you may know. It could be with someone that you may not know. But no matter what, it's a conversation that um, I've tried to have that will hopefully help you make today better than yesterday. Hopefully something in the next hour and a bit. In fact, I guarantee that there's something in the next hour and a bit that'll make you go, oh, right, oh, yeah. And maybe put a new perspective on things and maybe make you try things a little differently that'll hopefully help you make today better than yesterday. I have to say a massive thank you to everyone that was hot on the clicky buttons and getting those tickets for the uh, Wollongong Gold Coast and Canberra shows. Can't wait to do those shows with Mike Mills. He's able to make all of them, which is going to be amazing. Uh, Rachel Barron, my producer, will be there as well. And, um, yeah, we're going to do the show, do the live show that um, we've already sold out in Sydney and, and in Melbourne and in Brisbane. And we're, we're, going to, we're taking it on the road again. And um, I, I can't wait to do those gigs. Every show's meet and greet. There's book sales at every show. So if you do come along and you want to say hi, you don't have to buy a book to say hi, just say hi i'll be out after the gig and i generally try and stay as long as i possibly can till i say hi to whoever is waiting to say hi sometimes the lines are long longer than the show and that's fine but because that's it we're all here here together so we may as well come and say hi um i just did want to just touch on it's it's been a heavy couple of weeks um uh in the the southern hemisphere and then in the south uh what are we southwestern pacific Eastern Pacific? I don't know. Where do you stand? Where's East and West anymore? Southeastern Pacific. That's where we are. It's been a heavy, heavy couple of uh, 
Southwestern Pacific, because we're looking at the other one. So whose geography class did I fail? All of them, apparently. It's been heavy down here. Um, extraordinarily horrible things happening in, in New Zealand and um, a very difficult reaction to grasp here in Australia. Um, and so I guess the re- reminder that I got that I could only you know encourage you to, because I was overwhelmed by it. I'm sure you were overwhelmed by it. Just, um, I guess it's in alignment with the work I'm doing with the the new shrink I was telling you about. What what can I do about it? All I can do is take an action that's in accordance with my values. And what is that? I just try and be kind to people. That's it. That's all I can do. That is really all I can do is just try to be kind to people. And um, I would encourage you to do the same thing because it seems to be all right. Um, Yeah, and just try to remember that. You know, the the news and the media are very interesting things. And that in Australia, approximately 10 million people drive their cars home safely every single day. But two car crashes will make the news. So we might think that there's car crashes all the time, but there's not. There's 9,998,998 safe trips. Um... So, yeah, just try to be kind, man. <laughs> try to be kind. And um, maybe I think I might have to get a big poster of Jacinda Ardern and put her up on my wall because <laughs> she's incredible. She's truly, truly incredible. Truly incredible. Um, I have to thank very much everyone that got in touch through the week. Uh, thank you very much for the kind messages on Instagram and the emails. It's It's very nice to know that. Not only that you listen to the show and where you listen to the show and people sending me fantastic photos of where they listen to the show. Just It's called a podsy. You take a picture of where you're listening to it. Brett Robbo was listening on a cross-country skiing adventure somewhere. Um, it was pretty awesome to be joining him in the forest. That was pretty great. Uh, so wherever you're listening to the show, just snap a picture of it with your phone and just shoot it over either on Instagram or you can email me, send us your email at gmail.com. Uh, it's, it's nice to know that as well that, um, this show is resonating with so many people and it's just kind of a, uh, a normal and, you know, regular kind conversation about, what did we talk about the other week? What was that word? Neurodiversity. You know, brains that are not exactly the run-of-the-mill brains is fine and we can just talk about it and then it's okay. Um, it's nice to know that that's, that's resonating um, and I'm grateful that I might be able to help another person who's going through something themselves by sharing um, because that is certainly what helped me. Uh, Speaking of my brain, um, I finally caught up with my psychiatrist. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Um, If you've read the book, uh, my book, you'll know that uh, my psychiatrist has a rescue greyhound and um, that rescue greyhound used to get zoomies when I walked into the room because I was so frazzled and my energy was beaming out of me like a, a faulty electrical transformer and um, the dog would need to be taken out of the room because I was so agitated quite often uh, and it's always a win when the greyhound is asleep on the floor yeah it's, I get stoked when that happens so I've, I've got an unbroken record for the last couple of months now which I'm pretty happy about uh, so yeah and um Speaking, I, I do have to, I mean, in the, you know, full disclosure, uh, just to let you know what's going on, 
he's um we had a long talk and he's we're just kind of experimenting he's he's gonna he's just giving me a little something to help me sleep now i've been off meds since december 2017 yeah so this is the first thing besides coffee that i've taken uh that changes my brain and um i did speak with my mentor and we are in full communication about it um but just hope hopefully the idea is that just trying to get a couple of nights in a row because i think at the moment i'm just waking up out of habit you know um like my body's like oh it's 1 30 we woke up this time last night let's get up again um there's no anxiety i'm not full of <gasps> like that's not happening i'm just awake but then can't get back to sleep and it sucks so just trying to it's the teeniest, tiniest dose of little something to help me stay asleep. That's it. It's, um, yeah, just trying to get a couple of days in a row together and see how that might work. That's the experiment anyway. That's what we're doing. Um, but because of, you know, my life and what I've done and who I can be around things like alcohol and benzodiazepines, Audrey's in charge of it. So Audrey's got the, Audrey's got the sleepers. Uh, I don't know where in the house it is. Uh, she'll only give me one when I ask for it, and she will won't give me any more than I prescribed. Um, and it's you know, in the same way that I put a seatbelt on when I go and pick up my kid from dancing, I don't expect to have a car crash and need the seatbelt, but I do it. I put it on. All right. So in the same way, you know, I I give Audrey the box of drugs, and you know, she goes and puts it somewhere where I don't know where it is, and like those precautions are are only that like I'd rather have those precautions and I don't think we I need them at this point you know I'd rather not think that I need them I don't think I do but I'd rather be doing it rather have those safeguards in place and rather have her fully across anything um because neither you know nobody wants a relapse <laughs> especially I oh, look especially when you consider that I used to climb on the back of Prince Valium's horse, and he would horse, and he would he would ride me into the ride me into the sunset many a night, off into the land of sleepy bobos. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't do that anymore. Um, but yeah, so that's 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 what's going on, and that's how we are careful around drugs like that. Um, when we are people who have lived and are living a life of sobriety. So that's that's where we are. That's what's happening. Um, in between my ears this week, I hope your week's okay. Speaking of that, um, I am so, so excited uh, that my guest is here today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dr. Ian Chung has been practicing for nearly 50 years in Sydney, Australia. Uh, we'll get to, into his story in a second. However, he, he kind of made the name for himself as Dr. Rock, the doctor you call when you have a major international performer that can't make this show and there's 20,000 people who've bought tickets that are on the way to the gig as you speak. That's when you call Dr. Chung. And what do you know? Your star walks on stage not long after. If you've read my book, you'll know how I came to meet him, um, but I can't tell you how glad I am that I did meet him. Not only was he the first doctor to diagnose me uh, with social phobia, which was the first time everything started to make sense when he explained exactly what it was that I had, um, but he was also the first doctor that I saw about my head that taught me real skills to deal with what was happening rather than just talk about it and try and unpack things from my childhood. Um, I can't thank him enough for getting angry with me uh, when I said, I don't want your antidepressants, I'll just have a couple of beers to calm down. And um, it was his anger and his frustration that really shook me out of my stubbornness and led me to take those meds, which ultimately gave me incredible relief and also made me kind of lament that I didn't take them when they were offered to me nearly a decade before. Uh, yeah. This conversation talks a lot about addiction in a really interesting way. He, that's pretty much his specialty. And I was very, very lucky to, found, to have found him. And I couldn't be more grateful that I can share his perspective on addiction and alcoholism with you because he's a man that has helped many, many, many people. He's very, very good at what he does. A quick note, just because Dr. Chung helped me, it doesn't mean he's the only person who can help. I've had many doctors since Ian, and they've all helped me get where I am and stay where I am today. He's just the one who set the standard to which I hold all the other doctors accountable to. There are many, many excellent doctors who can help you if you need help. It's important to allow the time to find them. You might not click straight away. It might not work for you and that's okay. They will work for somebody else. They'll be really good for somebody else, but they might not be good for you and that is fine. But it's, inc- it's important to leave time for that. It's important to keep trying and keep trying to find the doctor that you do click with, one you can trust and one that makes you want to do what they tell you to do. Because if you're at the point where you're seeing a doctor, you're at the point where your ideas have run out of usefulness. Be honest with yourself. So be quiet, listen to what they tell you to do, do it. That's all I can tell you, all right? It, it was in doing what I was told by doctors like Dr. Chung that helped me get to a place where I'm a lot healthier than I once was. 
it's not hyperbole to say that Dr. Chong changed my life. And I'm so very grateful that you now get the chance to hear the story and hear the extraordinary perspectives of this incredible man. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Ian Chung. Welcome to my kitchen, Dr. Chung. How are well, you? Thank you, Osha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so I'm so happy that you're here. I'm well, so happy that you're here. I'm very pleased to reconnect with you. It's uh, been a long journey. Yeah. It goes back about 12 years, if I it does. remember correctly. It does. Actually, mine goes back a year earlier because oh. I was given your number. <laughs> it was uh, – um, I was given. I told the story in my book, but um, I was given your number by uh, a, a woman who used to work with a former client of yours, and I. It, she was a receptionist at a recording studio, and I, I walked in, and um, I had a, a hooded jumper on and a baseball hat and a pair of sunglasses, and I had the hood pulled down over my head, yeah. and I kind of walked in, and I said, I'm here for the voiceover, and I sat down in the corner, and this is a time before new phones, so I wasn't texting. I was just sat there, all right, yeah. and I waited for like 10 minutes, and they called my name, and I just kind of went, and I nearly ran to the studio, um, which, as you know, a recording studio, it's like two doors, double lock, soundproof, oh, safe, finally. <laughs> and then when it was time to go, yeah. I, I nearly ran again out, from the studio across right. the reception and she went, Oi! She called me. I said, get over here. And I thought it was something about parking or something. She goes, listen. And she looked at me and she made a circle with her finger and says, I've seen this before here. And she handed me this piece of paper. She says, call this doctor, tell her I sent you. Right. Tell the receptionist that I sent you and they'll right. squeeze you in. Because okay. um, she was someone who had worked in the music industry for a long time. Right. Right. And I put, I blue tacked your number to the wall of my office and I looked at it every day for a year. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that's not an uncommon story. I often hear that from people that come to me and they say, they tell me it's taken me 12 months to get here. So I suppose when you're ready, yeah. the teacher will arrive, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yes. I so love it. There we are. Yeah, and I'll never forget the first day I, I saw you. There was uh, you. Know, you have an uh, an office um, that's in an older part of the city, and it's so all the rooms are quite small. And I'm in this waiting room, similarly dressed, my hat, my hood, hiding. Yes. And um, the patient before me came out, and the two of you had a conversation about test results uh, in front of the waiting room. And I looked at that, and I'm like, if he does that to me, I will run out the door because right. it was just it was just I was so crushed with the social phobia at that point I was yeah. just terrified yeah I was yeah. terrified but I'm you know like a typical bloke I had to wait till it got acute to the point where <laughs> right. I you know I couldn't breathe yeah. before I came to see you sorry I didn't show yeah, up yeah. earlier it might have been easier to deal with <laughs> well anyway yeah we proceeded with that and yeah. uh, you your journey has proceeded Beyond that, and yeah. uh, and here you are, uh, yeah. telling me that uh, the uh, the some of your issues are now much less uh, prominent. Yeah, yeah, they still pop up every now and again, um, but I I think that's you know that's just kind of how it it might be yeah. uh, that it's just you know it's just kind of a, a little thing in the corner of my vision every now and then. No, that's not it. You know, it's just a little a little thought, um, like when you. 
I don't know, if you're learning another language and you've previously learned French or Italian and then, you know, you're trying to speak Spanish but a French word jumps out. Right. your brain just going, oh, looking for something sure. and it's not, you know, a deliberate right. thing. It's just kind of just right. kind of there. So I think that we can say that elements of your issues are still within you, A, from a genetic point of view, the wiring up of your brain, yeah. and secondly, from the sort of years of, uh, of uh, – doing things particular ways and learning things yeah. a particular way and they just stick with you. Yeah. So that's why it's there and and I think it's important for you to, in terms of relapse prevention, meaning that you don't slip back there, yeah. that you understand yourself uh, yeah. both in the way you think and how you feel because if you can recognise that it's there, then you have a chance of sort of intervening and doing something about it. Yeah, that's a that's a really important point. Um, mm. Even just this morning, I was um, I was doing a voiceover for a, a TV show earlier this morning, and uh, one of the scripts I had to read was just full of things that used to trigger me, yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. But I remember going like uh, just before Audrey, my wife, left to go to the gym. I was helping her hang out the laundry. You know, we're just hanging out the laundry, and I just said to her, I said, "Listen, you know." I know we're fine. We're sitting here. We're hanging out laundry. It's a blue sky day. The dog's happy. The dog's wagging its tail. We're hanging out laundry. It's a beautiful time. My throat wants to close over. You know, I'm just letting you know. It's got nothing to do with reality. It's just like an old thing that's just kind of sure. popping in. So here we are. Let's kind of get present with hanging out the laundry. Let me touch your hand. Let me get grounded to the moment. And what do you know? In the you know, 45 right. seconds, a minute later, it's gone. But it's uh, what you're saying. It's just recognizing. Oh, that's just that thing. That's what it right. is. And then. So uh, what that requires is that you're capable of being mindfully self-aware, whenever, uh, and so that you know what's going around in your head. Because, and then uh, having that awareness that's going on, being able to understand it. Yeah. To rationalize it as it's just all the things you just said. Mm. I know what this is all about. I know it's not real. It's not rational. And uh, but this will help me. And so mm. you then did something to help alleviate it. So there's this treatment strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I remember that's the that's the thing you taught me really early on. Your your three hours, but we'll we'll get to your three hours. I um I for one, I am um, part of me has always wondered, like, he's he's going to retire. He's going to retire one day. He's going to retire. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm just – I'm thrilled that you're still working. Right. Well, I, I intend to work. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm working still full-time, uh, two and a half days in Darling Hearst office and two and a half days in my Hearstville office. So that's still 50 hours a day. And, uh, and I still run the Law Society's care program called Law Care. And um, – and so I still visit at the Mission Australia to do my voluntary work there as well. And I don't intend to stop because I think that that is a risk of becoming irrelevant and, um, and indolent, you know, in other words, doing nothing, lazy, sitting around. And I think that we all need, do need to maintain some sort of a meaning with our lives to do something that is uh, meaningful and I don't find playing golf or playing the stock markets or playing bridge very meaningful. Uh, and so I keep doing what I do uh, because my fascination has always been the human condition and now I can sort of apply some of that particular interest for helping people. So that's why I'm continuing to work. I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that, that you are and uh, it, it makes me happy to see uh, – because my, my, my dad – he worked. He just he would never stop. 
It's an interesting thing you say that because I know your father was a doctor. I recently had to go to the uh, one of the big venues and and uh, when I arrived there to to see the people I had to see, I ran into the tour manager and he said to me, oh, my father knows you. I said, well, how would that be, you know? He said, because my father was the superintendent at a particular hospital. I said, wow, yes, I, I vaguely remember that. And uh, he said, yes, uh, and I asked, how is your father? And he said, well, actually, not the best. He's really quite unhappy. He said the worst thing he ever did was to retire from his work <laughs> as a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, don't, I, I don't know. I'd like to, uh, and I, I say it often on this show, this is how I want it to go, Ian. I want to be like fit, 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 dead. <laughs> right. Well, that needs a lot of effort to keep that fitness. I'm happy to yeah. do it, mate. I'm happy to yeah. do it because I don't want to sit around and, you know, yeah. watch, watch television until I'm, yeah. you know, for the last six years of my life, I'm yeah. not interested. And I guess when you say fit, I guess you're really meaning in many, many ways, I think both uh, physically and mentally. Absolutely. And, and I guess existentially yeah. or spiritually as well. And as you know, that's my my concept of what uh, uh, fitness is, is uh, or wellness is about. Yeah. Just going to just show you uh, uh, what I see as being fit. I'll show you two photographs. That is me about 10 days ago. Oh, my goodness. This is uh, Ian showing me a picture of him skiing. It looks like North Aspen. America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the trees. Wow. Yeah. Look at yeah. you. Look at your yeah. turns. Yeah. That's fantastic. I think I know how to do it. Uh, and that same time, that is the other part of my life. Oh, that is absolutely wonderful. Now you're Married showing- 54 years. 54 years. Yeah. Looking so, happy still. <laughs> yeah, you're so happy. Well, who wouldn't be? Look at that. Yeah. Look at that. And that's um so let's let's talk about that as far as happiness goes. You've seemed to got it pretty dialed in. You're doing work of meaning and value to you. Mm. You are keeping yourself physically, you know, yeah. fit and well. And you've got someone that, you know, you care about and someone that cares about you. Sure. Well, in terms of happiness, that's a very difficult word because happiness is a very transient emotion, actually. Now, being happy means you just get a little flash of something or other and then it drifts into normality and then potentially into unhappiness. Mm. So I think that contentment is a much better thing to aim for, you know. So that that is one thing and uh, certainly, I mean... Uh, to be contented, though, I suppose one has to feel safe. In other words, if we're being shot at in a in a, a war zone, then certainly you're not going to be happy. And I guess if you don't have a roof over your head and enough to eat, that's they're all basics. But in Australia, I think by and large we can say that we have those things. So we come beyond that then, and that is then feeling a sense of belonging with someone else and um, and having someone to love. Really, you know. When you do have that, the whole world sort of conflates into the person that you have before you. I mean, if you read Shakespeare's uh, words uh, when he talks about Romeo and Juliet, you can see the, well, some people might see it as infatuation, but, you know, but on the other hand, and perhaps it is true love and nothing else exists when you have that, uh, that, uh, that connection with somebody. I suppose the thing, the other thing, of course, is to have some sense that you're you're doing something, some sort of a meaning that your day 
has been worthwhile in some sort of a way. And I suppose if you have those things, uh, one can be content. And if we then start go chasing happiness as such, uh, it's hard to achieve that, I think, and it's a bit transient. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've certainly found that. And uh, I think one of the biggest adjustments, someone actually asked me about this the other week, one of the biggest adjustments was um, when I uh, first got sober and then, you know, as I, I got very, very ill and then as I, you know, got better and better and better, um, I stopped experiencing these incredibly hyper states, all right, mm. which I thought was happiness, mm. all right, but it was, I, I felt like my skin was going to peel off, I was going to burst, all right, mm. and that was, for me, that's what I experienced when I was in a, yeah. a birthday party, yeah. you know, or riding my bicycle, okay, <laughs> right. and it was just utterly unsustainable because mm. of the amount I had to drink to come down from that because right. my teeth would chatter, you know, it was just yeah. my hands would shake, it was impossible. Yeah. And so that was kind of a tough adjustment because, you know, to be honest, I kind of, for a while, I kind of missed it. I missed how high it was. Yeah. But it was, it, I just, it's something I just can't do. And now I'm just, you know, I, I find just such joy in the tiny little, like the way I would describe it is like on a chilly day when the sun breaks through the clouds a bit and you feel the sun warm your skin a little and you go, mm. oh, that's kind of how it is now. Sure. And it's taken me a while to recalibrate to that, yes. but I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it a lot more because it feels a lot, oh, this is nice, versus the, oh, this is the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Which it used to be. And I just, yeah, I, yeah it was. It was unsustainable. Unsustainable. And yeah. unfortunately, I did chase it for a while because yeah. it, was, it was like free drugs because I would, you know, want to yeah. be at this high all that's the time. That's right. Um, you, uh, you have an extraordinary history, and, and anyone that stood in your office can look at the walls and go, this guy's lived a, lived a life. Yeah. Um, you, how you came to do what you do, I think, is just as fascinating a story of how you do yes. what you do. You, uh, you and me, we were both not born here in, in Australia. Um, you were born in Hong Kong, correct? Yes, I was born in Hong Kong. My father was born in Australia, but he was sent back there in his teens to be educated, as Chinese used to do at that time. And then my mother was born in London within the sound of Bow Bells, which makes her a Cockney. And then she did the same thing. Her father sent her to Hong Kong to be educated and uh, and hence I came to be. Unfortunately or fortunately, uh, the um, Second World War began when my father was halfway to Australia to maintain his Australian citizenship. That was a time when if you were an Australian citizen, you weren't guaranteed that if you're not white. So uh, he had to come here, but halfway here, Pearl Harbor was bombed. So I spent the war years with my, with my mother in Hong Kong and under Japanese uh, occupation. And of course, schooling there was Japanese and my mother didn't want me to uh, do that. So I, um, we were, well, I suppose, one of the first boat people, I suppose the very first came with Captain Arthur Phillip, but uh, I came with uh, a British uh, aircraft carrier called the Striker because uh, my father was in a sort of diplomatic role in Sydney and so we left very soon after the surrender of Hong Kong by the Japanese. So I didn't start school until I was seven and a half. So, uh, but I, as it turns out, I guess it seemed, didn't seem to have any ill effects on me. Mm. And then I had my schooling and 
Here in Sydney? Po- yeah, immediate post-war period was not a was not an easy time for anybody, you know, in, in 45. But having said that, it was miles better than Hong Kong. I could remember one time when I first arrived, uh, my father was emptying the milk after its bottle, bot- out of its bottle into the sink and we were just staggered. What, what is it all about? And my father said, oh, I need the bottle to put outside for the milkman. Well, we'd never seen milk. Fancy pouring it down the sink. As for the coupon system that we uh, that uh, that Australia had at the time, we always had much more coupons than we needed. But a lot of Australians were whinging about how few coupons they had to buy the their needs, their basic needs. Yeah. But anyway, Australia's been very kind to me. We've we got have free education, public yeah. education. And I won a Commonwealth scholarship to go to university. Yeah. I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, in actual fact, I went to the National Arts School for, for a year, but my father wouldn't uh, countenance that sort of a career, so I ended up doing medicine. Right. So that's the beginning of this yeah. professional journey of mine. So much. My Obviously, I've, I've known Georgia since she was 10, and, mm. and, and there's so much effort uh, in our society placed upon the rearing and safety and safekeeping and, mm. and teaching of young kids. And yes. uh, certainly in, in writing the book, I, I, I talked a little bit about my mum's own refugee journey and, yes. and growing up in a refugee camp in, in Germany. Do you remember what, what it was like in Hong Kong? Like were you just were you still playing on the streets? Was there soldiers around? No, there were, we were, I was quite protected. I was there with my mother and her mother and I think that that sort of provided certain protection. I really didn't have any uh, friends uh, at that time, so it was a somewhat solitary mm. time. There were not many kids around for me to play with. But harking to your story of uh, how well we uh, helicopter care for our children these days, I remember I was maybe seven and a half, just shortly after I arrived, we still had trams in Sydney in those days, and our first home was in, in Magville. And I remember seven, half, eight, I, I could barely step up to the, the step of a tram, but my parents sent me on my own into town, into Campbell Street, where there was a Chinese shop, probably their first and only Chinese uh, barbecue shop there was at the time. To, so they sent me there to buy a roast duck. And uh, I remember being quite, being quite nervous that I would get there, uh, so... Uh, I can't imagine anybody doing that these days <laughs> with a child seven or eight years old. And my, when I got home, I was actually berated. I was in trouble because I, I forgot to follow one of the instructions, which was to put the juice or the gravy of the duck into a, a, a billy can that I'd been given. So, that, so I guess that was... Uh, that was a style of the rearing in my growing up. I could years. just imagine this people on the tram and there's this eight-year-old kid holding this duck in one hand <laughs> that's just been hanging in the roaster for you know overnight, yeah. just on the tram and holding the bar with the other hand so it doesn't fall over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was that, yeah. That's extraordinary. When uh you know, when you got into the medicine, it was similar actually to my story to my mom. It was like she didn't really want to do medicine. It was a dad that was like, no, no, you're yeah, doing medicine. Right. Were you resentful of that or did it, did you come to enjoy it eventually? No, I, I, I didn't mind. I just accepted what came my way. Uh, I didn't have – I think the one thing I, I, as I reflect, 
it was my assumption that I would have tertiary education. I didn't. It didn't occur to me that I would just wander off and get a job. I I just sort of thought it was natural to have tertiary education. So when I went up to university, because I, it was an open scholarship, I could do any subject I like. I actually took uh, an enrolment form from for architecture because of my artistic uh, interests, and one from medicine. And I sat outside the great hall. Uh, and then after an hour or so, I just went in and and enrolled in medicine. So it was like that. There was no resentment. So right. I just plodded along. I mean, I, I, I guess I must have done all right in my primary and secondary education, but the tertiary was not so quite the same because we were just not a wealthy family. And so, you know, uh, we had to make our way work-wise yeah. somehow or other and then go to university as well. But I got through. So that's was behind me there. What was what was life like for a for a Chinese kid in high school in in Sydney? Well, I after the war, in primary school. I think I was the only Chinese kid in the uh, in my primary school. It wasn't too bad. I don't recall much bullying or what uh, so on. And in uh, in the uh, high school, I went to Randwick Boys High, and that at that time there was a lot of European. Refugees, uh, you know, Ukrainians and Lithuanians and uh, Hungarian Jews, uh, and many of those were quite wealthy. And so I was the poor kid in the place, and and they were all newcomers as well. So it wasn't too bad actually. Yeah. I didn't get too much uh, hassle with all yeah. of that. But of course, the Chinese population at that time was very small. I, I remember when I graduated from medicine, there was only five Chinese doctors in all of Sydney. I knew them all too. And, uh, of course, now there's five in just the office, one of the offices I work yeah. at. <laughs> but, but but again, you know, even though you were born in Hong Kong, your family's history in Australia goes back. Oh, a long time. My father, my grandfather came here in 1882 yeah. and he didn't go to the gold fields. He started a, a, a soft good business, you know, tablecloths and stuff yeah. like that. So it goes back to that, and he was actually a foundation member of a welfare association from our village area called Tungun, and so that uh, society still exists rather wealthily because they they invested their money and they own a bit of property. And yeah, when you think about that that generational wealth, because there was a lot of conversation around Australia Day, and I was yeah. trying to engage with someone online, telling them about, look, you know, there's a there's a big difference in generational wealth between and between our cultures, you know, mm. and you know, some people just kind of take it for granted that their great 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 grandfather uh, who lived here put some money in a bank in 1880, yeah, and even at a minimal interest rate, yeah, you know, that puts a foundation that the rest sure. of the family can then. Sure. Live on yeah. and, and grow on, and always kind of know is there. Yeah. And when that generational wealth isn't there, particularly with newcomers and people new to the yeah. country, it's a lot more unstable. Life sure. is very, very, very different. But well, I'm glad they're doing well. How did you first start to come around the uh, the performing arts? Shall we say? Yeah. Well, it just happened to me. You know, being where I was, I saw a few people who were in the arts, and. Um, and um, and it just grew from there, you know. Uh, I can remember looking after Skyhooks and what's the other big band from that era? Anyway, I can I can remember those days. And what did someone just call you up and say? We've got a guy. He can't sing. He's got to go on stage tonight. Can you help? 
Not quite like that. They would they just sussed me out in diff- uh, smaller ways, uh, lesser ways. It's just fairly ordinary general practice type things, and then it progressed from there. Mm. But it just happens. I think that it wasn't a matter of setting goals to be something or other or to have a career in a particular area. It wasn't like that at all. It's really just a matter of getting in there and taking what I do seriously and doing it in as inventively in sorting out people's problems. Mm. That's how, how it happened mm. because it really was just that one day I was uh, visited by these three people who wanted to talk to me and and what they wanted to talk to me about was would I tour with the Rolling Stones? <laughs> well, at the first, I didn't really know what that all meant. Uh, I didn't know what Rolling Stones means. I, I certainly know that know that now. And so that was uh, the beginning of my rather deeper level of uh, yeah. contact with with uh, with that in that area. But one particular story. Uh, uh, that really explains that, and I've had permission to tell this story from the person involved, was I had a call to go and see Tina Turner at, uh, in a hotel in Sydney. So I went across and I, and I, when I arrived at the door, Tina says to me, Dr Chung, we've met before, and, and she said, look, when we're finished, I've got a surprise for you. I said, I was staggered. Tina Turner's got a surprise for me. So anyway, I, we uh, dealt with what I was there to see her with uh, um, and after my examination half an hour later, I had to say to her, uh, because she just sat there, uh, you had a surprise for me. So, oh, yes, I have. I want you to meet someone. So she disappears into her suite and brings out and she says to me, I want you to meet my manager. And that manager was the manager of Sherbert somebody that I'd looked at after maybe some quite some time ago. Yeah. So uh, so that's what happens, I guess. Uh, it's, you, you really can't set goals. I'm going to look after Tina Turner or, or Tour with the Rolling Stones. You can't do that. How does one go about it? So I am sort of have my doubts about uh, Anthony Robbins about not letting go of your dreams. I didn't have a dream of, <laughs> of touring with the Stones. You were just you were just the guy who was able to deliver, uh, and enough people knew that you were able to deliver and yeah. and trustworthy in that. Yeah, it's a obviously what you do is bounded by confidentiality, but and, you, know, uh, you know professional confidentiality. But it, it almost seems there's a whole other level when the level of celebrity and adoration and there's fifty thousand people out there who've yeah. paid a hundred bucks each. Yeah. Uh, to be within a 200 metres of this yeah, person and here I am with a tongue depressor down their throat. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And, I, you know, I, uh, I can recall having to recommend strongly that certain concerts had to be cancelled because of the issue that was there. I remember that two or three times uh, and I was very cognizant of the consequences and, and we had to talk about it. The consequences for one, would be that if you have a sold-out concert at the entertainment centre in those days, that's 12,000 people. That means the the promoter has to uh, tell 12,000 people they can't come and whether they might be able to come back or how do they get their money back. Uh, so there, there's a, a lot of things to consider in those sort of situations. Yeah, you also got – and. Uh, I think it ended up in a tour documentary or something like that. There's, you got quite good at helping people calm down before mm. going on stage and developing yeah. some techniques. How did, how did that come about? 
Well, it it's. I guess my, as I said to you, my interest is in the human condition, and the part of human condition is how people feel about about things. So, one of the things I ended up doing for quite some time was I was working in a detox unit run by the Sydney City Mission in those days called Campbell House, and I treated people with their addiction. But you know, I treat people who happen to have an addiction, and people tend to have issues of various sorts. Like anxiety, so one of those might be performance anxiety. I remember one person said to me again, again I did make a plan for this, but as a singing coach sent a lady to see me, because this lady was such a well-known singer, she had never had to audition for anything. However, because the show that they were about to uh, try to get into, she needed to audition and she couldn't do it, so she was sent to me. So. It's a very short step between performance anxiety to performance enhancement. Once you know what performance anxiety is and what you do to help people overcome that, it's a very short step to the next step, because performance enhancement is based on not letting things interfere with your performance, which is usually your own head, and to be able to put yourself into a particular mode. And I use the mode where I usually get them to link with their best performance of whatever song they're going to sing, and I say, "Well, what was it?" And they might say, "Oh, when I did this, I felt just so good." And I would teach them methods for entering into that space before they deliver the song. Of course, they delivering it from a particular place. But on top of that, in terms of performance, I do a fair bit of explanation. I suppose that. One would have thought it was very obvious, but nonetheless, I seem to have to make the point that you're there to connect with the people and to move them from one mindset to another one of whatever it is you're wanting to create. So I talk about those things as well as teaching them to get their heads into the right space, and of course, that's assuming that they can actually. Do the song that they've learnt the song and the technical side be dealt with by the voice coach or teacher, and once they've got that, the next thing, of course, is how to deliver it,、mm. and that's that's part of my methodology. Yeah, those um those techniques help me certainly、uh, a lot. I know I used to.、Uh, I remember before the Australian Idol shows would go on, I would spend the twenty minutes before we got mic'd up, like so we had would get makeup, then we get wardrobe, and then. The microphones would—they'd come and put the microphones in our clothes about I don't know about fifteen twenty minutes before we actually walked out onto the no we so we'd, we'd get the microphones and we'd walk straight out so I'd have usually about fifteen twenty minutes in there and I would go into my room and I would do all those things you just taught me I would I would imagine myself out on stage I would imagine what it was like to do it I'd imagine how to deliver it and、sure. I would see myself doing it all we'd already done rehearsals so I knew the words、mm. and、um, so then when I got out there it felt ever so familiar. Yeah, sure. sure we're live. Sure, there's 800 people in the room. Sure, there's two million people watching. But it was like, oh, I've done this before. This、sure. is this is it. it and it all feels very very normal because、right. I've done the scary stuff、um, in the safety of my room with the door shut, my breathing、sure. controlled, and you know, kind of getting that part together there.、Sure. And I found it really helpful. So that's the that's a psychological preparation, and that's very very important part. But I guess we. For the sake of your listeners, we don't ignore the fact that you also have to physically prepare yourself, which means that you do have to do your voice 
uh, exercises, etc. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. You can't just you can't just walk up to the masters and have visualised yourself winning. I know we talked about <laughs> golf before. You know, you, you actually have to yeah. have hit the bucket yeah. of balls every day yeah. for the last twenty years. Yeah. You can't just yeah. you can't just show up and uh, yeah. show up and do it. Yeah. You mentioned that you um you started working with people. You said you were working with people who happen to be addicts. Mm. You don't work with addicts, and I, mm. I found that to be you know an interesting distinction. How did you first get into working with people who, you know, had issues with addiction? Well, one of my very first jobs after I uh, finished my registration years at, uh, at hospitals was in psychiatric hospitals. I've done about 12 months at North Ride Psychiatric Centre and then I did six months at Kenmore, which is uh, in those days had 2,000 people in it outside of uh, Goulburn. And I was at the uh, early age of... 20 whatever, eight, late 20s, I was put in charge of the alcoholics ward. And in those days, people could be sent there by the magistrate because they were chronic recidivist alcoholics. And of course, I was very wet behind the ears. I knew, I mean, I, 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 I don't think I drank until I was in my well into my 20s. So therefore, this was a completely strange phenomenon. So I I guess it's my nature that if you're going to tackle something, give it a good shot. So I went on to educate myself about it and and so that was the beginning of my getting to know about this. The next thing that happened was uh, shortly after I uh, settled in my city office, I uh, I used to see some of these this group of people and they used to stay in a city, city mission place called the House of the Helping Hand down in Kent Street. And they uh, insisted that I was their doctor, so they, they got sick in the institution. I was asked to go down there. Eventually, they moved to a bigger uh, premises in Surrey Hills, and then I took on uh, their detox and their rehabilitation program. And that, of course, is where you do your learning. The books don't tell you a great deal. Extremely basic, uh, what you're given in the the books, the learning is out there in the streets. My best teachers are really my my uh, patients. The other thing that happened was that I became a uh, supervisor for general practitioners for the family medicine program. And so I would have a GP, uh, a budding GP allocated to me and I'd take them up to Campbell House and they'd see patients, I'd see patients. And teaching is the second thing. So my patients is... Uh, one of my group of teachers. And the second thing is I learn a lot from teaching. In other words, I have to have an answer. If they ask, if the, a budding GP asks me, well, why do you think that or why do you do that? I have to rack my brain and find an answer or, or even challenge myself. Why mm. do I do it? And should I do it some other way? So that's what, what happened. And so I, I progressed from there. What do you think of a common misconception about an alcoholic might be? Well, I think that um, this condition, of course, has been full of myths from the very, very beginning, and the changes started the middle of the 1800s. And before that, there was sort of, uh, the thing was was some sort of moral deficiency or or weak willness or something like that. So that's how it would have been viewed in those days. And then gradually these changed until eventually a medical model was devised 
to see addiction, alcohol in particular, uh, was a, uh, a medical disease. But I think that we are, many of us are now questioning that as the whole answer of this, of this condition. So certainly there's a very large medical side to it because alcohol, amongst all the drugs, is capable of affecting just virtually every organ in the body. I mean, everybody knows about fatty livers and cirrhosis, but it attacks the pancreas, the stomach, the esophagus, the heart, cardiomyopathy, uh, the brain. Um, the people I would see at Kenmore would have had Korsakoff psychosis or Wernicke's encephalopathy, or they would have peripheral neuropathy, um, which means they get pins and needles in their body. So it's a big range of medical things. But I think that treating alcoholism really needs an even more comprehensive approach than my usual approach. In other words, I think they also need shared care. They need to be maybe going to a group where they can discuss their issues that they share with others. I think having a drug and alcohol counsellor or, or having a sponsor are also required. I'm not going to exclude the doctor because they, they do have a lot of things to offer. And in particular where the condition has a very strong background, I mentioned before the need to treat the person, not just the disease well, the person may well have a whole lot of things. They may have adverse events in their past earlier years. They may have had emotional neglect in terms of the amount of input that was put into their development. They may have had some poor role models to follow. They may have inherited certain things. So it's very uh, common for us to have other issues to deal with other than the alcohol addiction itself. Mm. So th therefore... There is a tendency for people now to see alcohol as being a uh, biopsychosocial economic disorder. Uh, I would say that's lacking in one regards, and that is in the existential or spiritual sense, in that when people don't have a meaning for their lives, who don't have a sense of who they are, or don't have a trajectory, a direction for their lives to follow, are likely to be very unhappy. And it's interesting that that is left out so much uh, because so often I get people that might come, their issues may well be that they're doing something, they're really very unhappy doing it. I, I am, as I said, the Law Society's principal counsellor. For me to hear a lawyer say, look, I've been doing this law stuff for 20 years, but I hate it, but I don't know what to do next. They become very disturbed having that. And interestingly, in terms of meaning, it was a medical psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. So how come that's not incorporated into the management uh, program of, uh, of that we should all embrace fully? So I think that uh, my view with uh, with the management programs these ways, it's still in a process of being developed by our profession uh, yeah. more broadly. If, say, for example, someone's uh, listening and there is, uh, you know, a person they care about very much in their life who, as you mentioned, there's uh, certainly for me, alcohol 
it's the oldest word and the oldest line there is, is alcohol wasn't the problem, alcohol was the solution, alcohol what I was u- it was what I was using to manage what was the That's problem. Right. It was yeah. Yeah. Self-medicating. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, it's, not, it's not a new concept. It's no. a fairly standard Australian <laughs> male way of dealing with anxiety. Yeah. Um, for, for people that might be listening and there's somebody in their life that they are concerned about, what have you found to be an effective way of approaching that with that person? Because sometimes, uh, and I certainly know, I slammed the door on that many people who tried to help me mm. because oh, yeah, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. Mm. Denial is more than a river in Africa, Dr. Chung. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, well, look, now we're entering into the field of motivational counselling, uh-huh. which, of course, is, uh, well, is begins in the circle of the person with the issue. And I think that we'll start with certain things you don't do. You don't badger them, you don't judge them, you don't label them. And you, ad- you address the particular behaviour and how that, pointing out in the simplest way, without badgering, without nagging, that this is a very concern, you know. It may be that the way which you're not going to work, uh, what's going to happen? This worries me a lot. So you address some of the behaviours that are clearly irrefutable. These are happening, you know. And I think that you then, having done that for a little time, you then move towards the solution. And that's just for example, like that could that could be like, I've noticed you, you know, over the last month you've gotten to two fights or, you yeah. know, you've not you've yeah. called in sick three times because you've been on the drink yeah. and you're hung over. Like you haven't been able to see the kids play soccer twice. Like these are th- actual factual things that have actually happened. Well that's, that's right. Yeah. And of course there is the other one. Uh you know, you have to just go to a magistrate's court on Monday morning yeah. and just see how many of the cases involved in an alcohol. And certainly when it's something as definite as that, mm. then you can certainly – this is really a serious concern for me. I'm very concerned for your well-being, you know, uh, that this should have happened. Yeah. So I think that that's the way to go. But then you move to the solution, which is, look, I, I've heard about, well, in your case, this – this doctor, he might be able to help you. Yeah. Uh, and then so the person who's the helper needs to educate themselves about the condition. So I suppose one way to educate yourself might be for them to join with other people who have shared share that problem. They have a uh, another close member of their circle who have this has this problem, and that would be Al-Anon, of course, uh, and there they can hear what other people have done learn about it, educate themselves about the condition and then progress from using what they've learnt to stick at it and realise that, yes, it, it takes a while for people to have the insight to accept, yes, I, I'm sick of being sick. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah, <laughs> that's about the... It, it is, it really is. There's um, there's a point though, and uh, I remember you, we, we were talking, and I'll, I'll anonymize it, but I remember we, we were talking about someone close to me and you had to explain, because I tried all these things and it still wasn't working yeah. and it was starting to cause a great difficulty with myself i was starting to suffer because of my relationship with this person and you explained for the first time i hadn't heard it before you explained the concept of a loving disconnection Mm. um can we maybe talk a little bit about why you know at what point do you then move to that and why that's important Mm. well look it's the one of the things that have helped me in terms of doing my work is that i can't get emotionally caught up with my patients, and many of them have things that are really very moving for me or upsetting in some other way. But for me to be of use to them, I have to be capable of not getting caught up, engrossed into their their issue. I have to be able to have a professional level of disconnect with their emotions so that I can still think clearly as to where how to proceed. Otherwise, if I am caught up emotionally with it, it will affect my own cognitive abilities to be of help to them. Mm. So it's using that same model for the person that cares, that is, uh, you mentioned, that when you care for somebody. Of course, that is very hard to do when it's somebody you care about. In my case, it, it's professional. It's a person and I don't have, uh, much as I may have great compassion for them, I feel extremely strongly about many things that are, are going on, it is possible for me to separate myself, yeah. to be of use to them. But when it's but your husband it or your kid yes, or that something. that becomes extremely hard, and particularly if the issues that are being brought about actually impact on mm. on the, the person, you know, Domestic violence for one of them, you know, uh, uh, that does occur yeah. when people have addictions. And um, and so it's very hard to be emotionally disconnected when you've got that sort of stuff going on. It's hard to not, you know, if someone's, oh, just, just 100 bucks, can you just bring us 100 bucks? It's hard to, you know, say, I can't do it this time. You might have it, but it's yeah. super hard to say no. Well, I I have had a, one occasion where, a mother that I was looking after because she was having bereavement counselling. She'd been stuck with the fact that her son had been dead from an overdose uh, a year and she was still uh, in a a bereavement state. But it was was understandable because her son used to go, used heroin until he felt he needed to get cleaned again cleaned up, he'd come home and stayed long enough to get clean and then he'd wander out and uh, and get back onto the gear. Well, as it would happen, that boy was found the morning after he'd left home 
And as he was leaving the house, the mother did what she always did, and she answered it. I asked her, why would you give him $100? He said, oh, I can't have him leave home with an empty pocket. He was dead the next morning. So where do you think the money might have come from? Mm. And what do you think might subconsciously she sort of understood? Mm. She was the enabler of his death. It's, it's so horrible to hear. It's so horrible to hear, but it's so easy to understand how, like, why things like Al-Anon and Naranon are so important to help people understand that they can get sucked into the cycle and not realize that they're a part of it. Mm-hmm. And certainly that, that cycle, and it, we, we see it happen with, unfortunately, we see it happen with domestic violence. We see it happen with drinking and using as well. There's the, there's the bounce off the bottom. And there's the, oh, I'm never doing that again. And then everyone thinks everything's going to be all right again. And then we reach that, oh, this is a bit boring. And then bang, and then it all falls apart again. Sorry, 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 sorry. And then, you know, we come back around and we just keep going and going. But every time the bottom just gets lower and lower and lower. But people who are around the person who's drinking or using might not realize that they're a part of it, that they're sucked in there as well, that they are going, okay, this time she seems like she's going to be all right. So this time... I'll I'll come back, yeah. you know, not realizing that the, you know, the, the, the even though it's hard, you know, withdrawing your interaction with them might be the thing that makes them see, oh, okay, I have to change something because we're just going around in circles here. The, you have to allow them to get to their rock bottom. Yeah. That moment, this is just too much. Yeah, I can't keep going. It's so tough though. It's so tough to yes to watch someone you love. Go through that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's also, it's also really tough. There's a there's someone in my life who it's, I always get a, I get a text at 11.30 on a Friday night, about every three weeks. Mm-hmm. Hey, man, are you around? Yeah, I'm around. Can we go have a talk? Yeah, we can have a talk. Don't hear anything from him. Yeah. And three weeks later, so I know, I know what he's doing. Yeah. You know? And it sucks. It yeah. sucks having to wait. Mm. It sucks having to wait until – you know, he's actually ready. Yeah. And it's really hard. Yes, to find that the patience yeah. and the acceptance. Because they want to grab him by the scruff of yeah. the neck, man. Yeah. And I'm like, look what you're doing. <laughs> if only that would work. <laughs> but it do- why doesn't it work? Let's talk about that. Why doesn't it work when someone is kind of forced into, I don't know how much they do it here, but I certainly when I was living in America, I could see it was like court-ordered rehab. Like people were essentially sent yeah. away to rehab. Why doesn't it work? Well, look, and I've personal experience of that because I was also a visiting doctor at the Salvation Army and, of course, we would get people go there or ordered there by the drug courts and they were the ones that would be out of the place in less than a week because they were just there to escape jail. So I think that that just doesn't work. Uh, The person has to be ready. You know, and I guess that's why it doesn't work. There's the denial is just so strong, so much a part of what who they are and, and how they conduct their lives. Secondly, there may well be a range of issues that might need to be addressed before they can let go. Because if they've got panic attacks and they're using alcohol to deal with panic attacks, then obviously it's to remove their what they see to be their. Uh, cure for their panic attacks uh, without supplying another alternative just won't work. So that's where you need to really need have someone sufficiently experienced and professional to 
determine is there a reason. Yeah. And uh, then because you know what the reason might be, start to address those things so that they have another way of dealing with their their issue. Yeah, and people may not realise that. They might re- may not realise how slippery a slope it can be when that self-medication thing kicks in. Sure. When one beer after work just to change gears from the office back to being amongst your family yeah. becomes two beers when you get home becomes right. a beer at the pub on the way to the train station right. becomes, you know, sure. you know, it just slowly, slowly over time just can creep up. Well, there are, in the example that you've just given there, is that the people need to know how to manage their time and their work and how to end their day. And so let's assume that we've already talked about managing work and time and we now get to the end of the day. There are just some crucial things to be done before you leave. Instead of going home and having your alcohol to calm down, you need to finalise your day by reviewing your day and tomorrow so that you can contract with yourself. I've dealt with all of that. I've written down everything I need to do tomorrow. I don't need to think about it, number one. Number two, you have to put yourself into a much more optimistic mood. Be not so pessimistic about your day. Things going wrong. Oh, I didn't get that done. And that's not enough just to say, don't be so pessimistic. You have to see the other side, the perspective. In other words, you do a gratitude list. That got done and that got done. Wow, that's not bad. So you can then change your focus. And the third thing is to reconnect with who you really are. You are not the, whatever, lawyer, accountant, doctor. You are this person that has this loving family there. And what were they doing? Oh, so-and-so handed in their, their assignment. I wonder how that went. Start to connect with that. Now, having done that, on your way home, if you still feel that there is tension in there, then do something about it, not take it home and then have to self-medicate. Do some some physical activity, 20 push-ups, run on the spot. Go in, do something somewhat relaxing, get changed, have a shower, whatever relaxes you, warn the family, how you're going, and then you've sort of got a chance of being in control of your day and your emotions. You've dealt with your day, completed it, uh, rather than uh, go home in a bad state and then having to have some alcohol. My record for that was a lawyer actually, and he'd have a bottle, bottle and a half of wine with dinner with his wife. That's quite excessive. The big problem really wasn't that. After that, he drank a whole bottle of whiskey. Good Lord. Yeah. Every night? Yeah. Did his liver just pack up and leave? Good well, Lord. <laughs> oh, God. Yes. Well, that's, of course, an extreme. Yeah. But I think extreme. that uh, even if you're just drinking your you know, three to five beers, you're starting to yeah. use that too much as a, of a crutch rather yeah. than managing your day and yeah. ending your day. And dealing with your tensions, you're actually just going home with a tension and then having to drown them. And then everybody, uh, someone might have yelled at you at work that day and then your kids, 
then that energy is reflected off you onto them and then suddenly they feel bad. Like what? Now the energy, like the echo of what they did from that person at work has now affected the family. You will project your internalised feelings. You're really frustrated with the job so you come home and your wife says the washing machine is not working. The frustration then is compounded. Your wife will get double the frustration (laughs) because she's going to get the dose that you brought home. What's interesting about what you discussed is then, and thank you so much for sharing that little protocol because it kind of underlines how I feel that when people ask me about the work that I I do every day, which I, I do a fair amount of work every day. This You mentioned gratitude. Where is it? This book right here. That's all the gratitude lists are in there, the uh, sense of self, all the stuff. I write it down every day, every day. I spend, mm-hmm. I sit here at, you know, Six or six o'clock in the morning, have a cup of coffee and write all this stuff down, and I work out. And there's like a, there's a bunch of stuff that I need to do every day, sure. but because of that, I end up having a far more deliberate, effective, productive life than if I was using another way. Mm-hmm. And that that's the interesting thing. Yes, it does take a little time to do this stuff, mm-hmm. but it allows me, particularly with the the wrapping up of one day and the planning of the next, which reminds me, I should do more of that because. <laughs> then I'll go to sleep a lot easier. I'll wake up a lot easier. Um, It does take a little bit of time, but the investment is so worth the payoff. Oh, absolutely. It it needs to be somehow incorporated in a way. I mean, probably I should imagine you have physical hygiene, but you need to have also, you know, mental hygiene and you have to have sleep hygiene. We're just using the word hygiene metaphorically. You have to clean up your act in every way, not just with your shower, but also with how you prepare for your sleep, how you prepare for your day, how you end your day. This this is just what we do. It's not, will I organise my day today, this week or not? Why, why is there a question? What, the, the, it's unimaginable why you wouldn't get yourself a bit organised. <laughs> Absolutely. You, um, what I've always loved about the way you work is that uh, you were the first doctor that I saw that, um, you know, explained to me how medication was just a part of everything. Absolutely. I had been offered meds before and I didn't want to take them because it was – it didn't, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd avoided that because it was like, take this, it'll be better. And I, you know, but you had the ability to explain to me that this is one thing, but it's not everything. Absolutely so it's not, not. going to work if you yeah. don't do everything else. Have I? Yep. That's, uh, that's entirely the case, you know. Uh, so there is a medical side to treatment. And of course, there, that's where we're talking about medications. And certainly there are many medications that can be used in alcohol. There are ones that help reduce the amount of craving. There's other ones that make you vomit or sick so you don't want to use it. And if you have depression, then certainly you, one may consider antidepressants. But I think that that is nowhere near enough if you don't understand, A, your addiction, B, yourself. So psychoeducation, understanding yourself is really important. I mean, it goes all the way back to Socrates who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. So therefore, you have to examine yourself. Why do I think that way? Why have I got that sort of thing? So you have to understand all of those sorts of things and also learn the techniques for, for being able to contain them. They talk about mindfulness about uh, these days. But, you know, meditation goes back many, many years. These are all methods for getting your brain to where you want it to be, 
not where it just wants to drift. So those are all various mind-connected or psychologically connected strategies. Next, it's important really that you live healthily, and we've been talking about that, that your day doesn't get hijacked. You stay in control because you've got work and time management, Mm. all right? And you finish your days and you start your days. You get a good night's sleep. You follow the circadian cycle because if you don't, then you will get what a chronic jet lag effect, the way that shift workers or, or flight attendants might get. So good sleep control. So having making sure your day is, is effectively spent and has a, enough variety in it. And, of course, the fourth one, which I mentioned earlier, the existential one, because if you sort of have a sense that your life is going where you would had planned, if you've done the day and you thought, well, that was meaningful, if you have a sense, well, yes, I know who I am, I do this, I do that, then you won't have to worry about what other people think of you because you know what you are. So that's the existential. So they're the four groups of things uh, uh, in brief uh, that I think I needed. And you will need all of those three things whether you take a medication, you don't because if you take a medication and ignore the other th- three groups, uh, you'll get nowhere. Yeah. And so that's where I like to start. I start with all of those things because they're going to be needed anyway. Mm. Uh, and if in due course medications can add to it, well, I might then discuss the pros and cons of all of that. And, of course, many people do want to – avoid a medication, they make an interpretation. This means I'm really bad, I'm really mad. So they do resist it, which is a surprising thing to me to hear that so often when people go to a rave or a dance party and they swallow anything. <laughs> but if there's a difference, uh, Dr. Chung, is if, if I go to a rave or a dance party and I take a pill that I bought off a stranger on a dance floor, I'm having a party. <laughs> and everything's amazing. Yeah. If I can't stop these thoughts that are punishing in my head and I can't connect with people and I'm shouting at strangers yeah. and I have to take a drug, yeah. it means I'm crazy. <laughs> All right. And so the the trick, and I've performed this trick, you know, I got told to take this drug only when it's a really bad day because that will help me with this, this, this thing. Yeah. Um, so therefore, if I don't take it, I don't have the thing. (laughs) Bingo. (laughs) I'm not crazy. Oh, great logic. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't work. It didn't work at all. And and I I talk about it in the book. I I remember coming coming back with kind of my head hung. hung, I was like, okay, I'll take take the Zyprexa. Okay. (laughs) But I I get it, you know, because it it came with such a stigma that that I didn't didn't want to take this drug that was an antipsychotic. You know, I didn't want want to take it because it would mean – that I needed an antipsychotic, yeah. and I didn't want to need an antipsychotic, yeah. man, yeah. because I was so afraid of, of what it was. It didn't I didn't realize because yeah, I, I say it in the in the show that I was I, I was making a decision about taking medication with a brain that needed medication to make a good decision about make, <laughs> taking medication. You know, it just makes it difficult, doesn't it? It's like trying to bite your own teeth. Yeah, you know, it's it's it. You know, and and that indeed things got better when I just shut up and listened to my doctors yeah. and just did what they told me to do, right. and that's when things started to yeah things started to get better. Yeah, it somehow makes the other things a little easier to do, actually. If if anything, rather than being a cure, it just assists everything else to work. That's exactly it, and that's I think that's the biggest misconception about medication 
is that it's not this kind of model that might have been in the 50s and 60s of just like yeah. how much, you know, benzodiazepine can we just blanket someone with so yeah. they just kind of are awake enough to breathe and eat and poo, yeah. but that's about it. Yeah. You know, how, how much sedatives can we pile on someone and, and that's it. Uh, but then, then they don't have a life. They're just yeah. this blob of blue tack that yeah. walks around if they can walk. Um that it's not that it's it's more like the knee brace that you get at the physio, so you can do the exercises to get your legs stronger again. So when the knee brace comes off, you'll be okay. Right, you've explained that nicely. That's, <laughs> that's how it is. I've had some ex- I've had some experience. <laughs> um, you uh, you mentioned before about having something meaningful to do, having someone in your life that you can love and and, and loves you. That. That may very well be. It could also be a, an animal. There's people, you know, sure. you know, caring for an animal yeah. and having an Absolutely. animal that cares for you is incredibly healthy. Yeah. So, for I'm not saying that you need to be in a relationship to find happiness. You no. can get that with a with an animal that you care for, or sure. um, you know, somebody else in your life. Having a sense of community is is and being connected to those around you right. is is very very important. But I remember that you you were also very good with teaching me kind of like little little first aid that I could use in the heat of the moment. And uh, I remember you teaching me the three R's, which sure. I always found we've kind of covered a little bit, but I always found it super helpful to remember, oh, yeah. that's what's going on. Yeah. Well, the slightly more next level of the three R's is the four R's. Oh, there's, there's another R? Uh, yes. Okay. I'm excited. All right. Well, it starts with being mindfully self-aware. In other words, you know what you're doing, that you're actually – well, whatever it is, worrying about how this group is going to take you or accept you or or whatever, uh, and then you, that then becomes the stimulus to you feeling the that there might be a risk that you'll be rejected. Of course, therefore, you have to be aware, I'm doing stuff. I'm bringing about a set of things that will cause me a problem. So it's really important to, to have that. Uh, and that goes down to something as simple as eating your dinner and knowing what it tastes like or drinking your cup of tea and knowing the flavour of it, not constantly but intermittently. And certainly that's an, a beginning because – and then having had the psychoeducation to be able to interpret what's going on, then you rationalise it, meaning you make a, a more rational assessment of what's going on so that you can persuade yourself, this is not helpful to me. Having rationalised it, you understand that you are in a better position to let it go. Let's stop doing that. And the way to stop doing that is a rapid relaxation technique. We talked about mindfulness and meditation. You know, in performance enhancement, you're standing in front of a an audience. You don't have five minutes to lie down. You have to be able to take a deep breath and then connect with what you want to connect with at that time. So in the case of the three, the, those of the third are there, you're wanting to disconnect from all that mental agitation that you're creating and having uh, let it go with a rapid relaxation technique, you then refocus. You redirect your thoughts. You focus on a distraction, something more useful for you. Uh, So there we are. So there's four R's. uh, But to get to that point, you have to have sufficient ability to know what's going on inside of you. You have to have the psychoeducation to know how to interpret that you have to learn the relaxation technique, the rapid clearing of the mm. mind, and then the refocusing um, is to redirect your thoughts elsewhere. I find it in- interesting that 
or something you don't know, maybe seven months ago, I got diagnosed as celiac. Mm-hmm. I never knew mm-hmm. my whole life. I had the biopsy and everything right. and can felt like right. off, off the chart with my right. antibodies. Right. So I've had to learn so much about what it is I can and can't eat and how these things are affecting my body and right. all, the, all this sort of stuff. And I find it interesting that, say, for example, someone's kid gets diagnosed celiac, they will essentially go to home university and learn so much about what it is they can and can't eat and da 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 da, da. Yeah. But when it comes to the head, it's like, oh, I've got this. People may not want to, you know, take that level of investigation into sure. into what is going on. But I certainly in my own journey, what you're discussing, that I have found immense power in understanding more and more about what it is going on in my brain. What's the difference between an amygdala response to a limbic system response? Uh-huh. How can I tell the difference? Oh, this is what's going on. I can right. feel this in my hands. I can feel this in my heart. Oh, okay. Yeah. These are two different responses going on. Yeah. Look around what might have caused that. All oh, right. It helps me so much just understand more about what's going on in my body versus, you know, whatever thoughts might be might be coming. And, yeah. and the amount of, uh, yeah, it's work. But yeah. I find it to be so freeing to be able to help me recognize different yeah. reactions through the day. Do you find that your patients who take, I'm not asking for a gold medal here, but do you find when your patients go, I really, do you see a difference when they go from, I'm just here because, you know, I'm sick and I can't figure out to, no, I really want to get better. Do you find they they have an increased, you know, result level when they kind of actively yeah. work at it? Look, obviously they have to really want it because it. I'm there more or less as their coach. I can work out what's wrong with their, their game, it's their, why it's not being played right. Then I can tell them, play your game using this these methods. But if they're not committed to changing their game, well, they'll keep doing the same thing, the old saying of doing the same thing and thinking that, you'll get a different result. I'm telling you these things will give you a different result, but they have to somehow feel committed to it. But having said that, I can see that I have a responsibility to adequately convince them, motivate them mm. to do that. So I think that that's, that's what I would say. It's a team job. Mm. And so therefore they have to be in, a, in that space ready to to accept the help. Mm. Well, they Taken the if they've taken the twelve months that I took, <laughs> but then again, it took me. It, it was it, it's it's extraordinary. Like it took me that long to come and see you, but then it, then it took me like another, I think like another year before I I finally said, oh, yeah, I'll I'll take the meds. I just I just mm. didn't want to mm. have to have it. Mm. <laughs> yes, well that that uh, I I would I'm not that sort of judgmental or critical of that. People just take time to get to where they get need to get to. And there was a lot of things for you to learn about yourself in yeah. that time and and you had to get to that level of understanding and acceptance. You know, it's a pretty important that acceptance thing. This is how it is and these are what's needed and let's do it. Uh, you know, it's really uh, uh, fundamental to uh, the serenity prayer, isn't it? God grant me the serenity to accept what I can't change without some help and yeah. the courage to change the things that I can because I can, if I do these things, including maybe taking a pill too, then I can change it. And, of course, the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. It's, uh, and, of course, that's been somehow 
sort of more or less borrowed or hijacked by a therapy. You know, if we have a truism, something that's obvious, but somebody will come along and write a manual and they'll turn it into a therapy. Right. So that's now a therapy. Right. Well, acceptance, commitment therapy. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's actually actually really helpful. Like once, yeah. once you learn, I found it to be really helpful. Once, yeah. I, once I learned how to do it and once yeah. I, you know, kind of understood, yeah. oh, this is just, you know, yeah. It's just a couple of muscles contracting in my stomach. Yeah. That's what it is. It's yeah. not the world ending today. Which is really just that rationalising it properly, isn't it? It yeah. really just goes back to that. I just use a different mm. name for it perhaps. Yeah. 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 What if, if people are, are listening and they are, you know, they've heard you talking and they've, they've gone, that's it, I need to do something about this. What's the, what's the first step? The first step is to find somebody they trust to just give them some uh, some guidance, some counselling. So that could be just a family friend or a good mate, a, a good listener, uh, that they can say, look, this is uh, these are the things I've now recognised. I listened to that program and these things were mentioned. So what do you think? And then bounce it backwards and forwards and then look for a coach, somebody who's able to coach you through uh, your your process, your journey of self-discovery and, and then self-management. So, and usually it will require more than just a, a single person. It might need a range of things. As I said before, there, in the addictions, there is the a whole range of things. Uh, and of course, there are groups, but then again, there are some people who don't take to AA or NA. Uh, but there are other ways of doing it. But I guess getting guidance, one can't give you a uh, a single item that you can say, grab hold of this thing and you'll get out of it. You really need to devise a program that's a bit specific to your own needs. Yeah, like, and when you say like finding that coach, um, obviously in some parts of Australia their access might be a little limited. Yes. Um, but if... The first person you go you go talk to doesn't click. Mm, try, try again. Don't give up. You know, uh, I guess that's that's the answer to that. And of course, the uh, you know, I mean, it's your immediate circle of people that uh, would be a start, and then from that you can uh, move out into things that might have been mentioned. Because you're looking, um, it will come to you. When you stop looking, you'll never find it. I'm I'm so grateful you're here and I'm so grateful you came and I'm so grateful I met you because I wouldn't have the life I have right now had I not met you in and I'm just so so thankful. Well, I'm this is part of my job satisfaction to see people progress, move on, have a life. <laughs> and congratulations for that and keep on trucking. Mate, it's a daily thing. It's a yeah, daily thing, but it I it would not have looked like this. It would not have looked like this had I had I not come to meet you. So thank it's you. It's a pleasure for me to see you this way. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's awesome. <laughs> that was Dr. Ian Chung. Like I said, just because he's the doctor that helped me it doesn't mean that he's the only doctor who can help. If you need help, get about making that phone call. Get about taking the time to find the doctor that can help you and then do the work. 
I had speaking of help, I had a lot of help making this episode today. Um, a big thank you to Andy Ma, my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my fearless leader and show producer, uh, life producer. I can't get through my week without her. Mike Mills, also known as Toe Hider, made all the music today. And you, we made the show for you. And we can't make it if you don't listen. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you do need anything, send us your email at gmail.com or you can jump on the Facebook group, osha.is slash FB group. Find us on Instagram. Send us a podsy. Send us a picture of what you're looking at right now. Always get a kick out of that. Thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourselves. Do the work. Until I talk to you next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.